morning. Welcome to Vintage Church Sunday morning gathering. I'm happy to be here with you today. I'm thankful that we have a, another opportunity to open God's Word, to be with each other in fellowship, to uh, see the truth that is revealed to us through the Holy Scriptures, and to hopefully have our life impacted by that in a way that changes us. Um, today we're going to be, as Drew read, we're going to be continuing in 1 Peter chapter 1 and then start in chapter 2 a little bit through verse 3. Uh, I've titled the sermon today, Born Again to a Living Hope, the Living and Abiding Word of God. The Living and Abiding Word of God. Today, our sermon, uh, normally I try to make our sermons as applicable as possible and have a lot of application and a lot of things you can take home. Um, today, you're not going to have a bunch of points to take home and try to work on. You're just going to have one thought, and that is, as a child of God, I am to have a love and deep respect that causes me to read and study and follow the Word of God. So everything else that we talk about today is surrounded by that thought. As a child of God, I'm to have a love and respect a deep love and respect that causes me to love and read and live out the Word of God or some form of that. Will you pray with me this morning as we begin? Father God, we thank you for another day, another day of living, another day of breath. Uh, we have today, Lord, and as long as we have today, there's hope. Uh, there is a chance that we can live for you, that we can do what you've called us to do, to trust you, to follow you, to share the gospel, to proclaim that to others. Lord, I pray that today that we would make sure that we make the most of today, uh, that we would not look too deeply into our past and look too heavily into our future, but to make sure that today is a day that we understand that the Lord is made, that we will rejoice and be glad in it. We will take it as an opportunity to live for you. Lord, thank you for Sunday mornings. Thank you for the fellowship that it brings. Thank you for the word, the worship through music, the worship through giving, the worship through the scriptures. Lord, I pray that our lives, not only on Sundays, but our lives will be modeled by worship to the one true and living God. Thank you for your word that has been left to us and through the power of the Holy Spirit reveals to us your plan and your will for our lives in this world. Help us to never take it lightly. Help us to cherish it, to read it, to follow it, and to live it. We pray and ask these things in the name of the one true and holy God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Last few weeks we've discussed the development of proper conduct in the lives of a believer. In the lives of believers. We discussed how our proper conduct is founded on the faith in the great salvation that has been given to us. We have a great salvation. We have faith in the God of that salvation. And that as a primary motivating factor should lead us to live for him. Should lead us to live for him. Not only does our great salvation give us faith uh, in the things that are happening now. But our great salvation gives us hope in, an, in our future. That's hope in the immediate future, meaning that God is renewing, restoring, and reviving us so that we can live tomorrow and the next day and the next day in the hope of Jesus Christ, and uh, it should give us great confidence and encouragement and endurance, but also, as we saw in 1 Peter, hope in the grace that is to come. We have been given great grace to live, to, to work out our salvation in this world, in this age. But even an even greater grace is yet to come. And that grace is going to be given to us at the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which gives us a motivation. It gives us a motivation not to conform to the former way of living. But to live holy and set apart lives as, as He is holy. Last week we saw that one of the motivating factors for living holy is a healthy fear of the Lord. Not only is the Lord our Father, but He is our judge. I'm about to do a Holbrook sneeze. <coughs> Sorry. One? Okay. 
interesting. Um, which gives us motivation. Um, he is our judge, not just our father. We should be motivated by that. We should be motivated knowing that the God who knows us intimately like a father knows his children also is the one responsible for handing out the judgment for all of mankind uh, now and in the end of time. We fear him not because we're worried of being cast out, not because we're worried of being uh, thought of as less, not because we're worried of being pushed aside, but because... We want to honor the, a God, the God, with that great power. We want to honor a God with that great authority. We want to honor a God with all of the things that God has. So we fear him not because we worry he casts us out. We fear him because we know that he has all the power in the world, and yet he knows us, and yet he still chooses to love us and to save us. Um, that's a fearful thing because... There's nothing like it in this world. There's nothing like that in this world. So God is not only our Father, He is our judge. And for Christians, it should cause us to have a holy and reverent fear of God. We looked at developing proper conduct last week. And today we're going to sort of finish that off by uh, looking at the roadmap to doing so. Looking at the roadmap to doing so. And I believe the roadmap to living properly, to having true faith, to having true hope is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the living and abiding Word of God. But also trusting in the message that He has left us through the power of the Spirit of God. So today I've titled my sermon, The Living and Abiding Word of God. We've been taught throughout our studies that we are merely sojourners in this world, that we are foreigners, that we are travelers, that we are just passing through onto that great, great hope, onto that great joy that awaits us in heaven. Life is short, and as we see today, it's like grass. Uh, the flower, the grass withers and the flower fades. And that should be a scary situation. To navigate a foreign land, to navigate foreign situations, knowing that we are frail, that we are temporal, that we are not eternal. It should be a scary situation for us. But any astute believer, any person who has spent any time trying to understand God, trying to study God, knows that we are not left on this, to take this trail, to navigate this path on our own. Our Father, who loves us and cares for us, who has had a plan from the beginning of time to work out our salvation, would not do that to us. And so, as a means of giving us the ability to follow Him, to trust after Him, he has given us the roadmap to finding him, to living for him, and to enduring and to endure to the end. And that roadmap is contained in the Holy Scriptures, the pages of God's Word. In that, contain, in that text contains everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. I'm not saying that in a hyperbolic sense. I'm not saying that figuratively. In the text of Scripture, either directly gives us everything that we need or gives us the path to answer our questions and needs for everything that pertains to life and godliness. The strange thing is, though, that Christians often spend their entire life trying different solutions, seeking out different sources, for answers above and beyond the way that we know that God has definitively spoken. Leaving many Christians disobedient. Possibly leaving many Christians unfulfilled. Because they lack the knowledge of the content of God's word. As we study the text today, we must ask ourselves a few questions. 
Has God spoken to Christians? Has God spoken to Christians? If God has spoken to Christians, how has he primarily chosen to communicate what he has spoken? Has God spoken to Christians? And if the answer is yes, then how has God chosen to primarily communicate with Christians? And if God has spoken to Christians, and if he has a way of primarily communicating to Christians, how, and that is God's word, how much should we trust and depend on it? How much should we trust and depend on it? And if we answer all of the above questions in the affirmative, how much energy and time should we put into reading, learning, and trusting the Word of God? These are questions that you have to ask yourself. Has God spoken? I would like to tell you affirmatively, yes, God has spoken to Christians. How has He chosen to communicate that? Again, I believe it is through primarily through the Holy Scriptures who, are, who have then been revealed and understood by us through the Holy Spirit. How much should we depend on this truth? The Bible gives us some clear indication of that. It should be something that we meditate, day, meditate on day and night. It should be something that we implant our lives around. It should be something that we plant our stake upon. How much then should we trust and depend on it? How much then, how much energy should we put into reading, learning, and trusting the Word of God? Peter had a high view of the Word of God, and he is exhorting Christians in Asia Minor and subsequently us to do the same thing, to have a high view of the Word of God. And I know you've, you guys have only heard me speak of the Word of God just a few times, um, so this will probably be something new to all of you. But today, as we read through what Peter has to say about the wonderful Word of God, let, our, let his words motivate us to reinvest our time and energy into what God has said through his word. I have one point and then some subpoints that sort of define that one point. And that one major point is the wonderful word of God. The wonderful word of God. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth from a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We all have a great familiarity with the word of God. Through his grace, the Bible has been made known to the world in almost every language. We have the Bible on our phones, on our nightstand, on our clothes, and even our jewelry. We are surrounded by the word of God as we walk in this daily life. And as we should be. Because the Word of God is amazing. It is wonderful. It is life-giving and life-changing. But I would like to encourage you in this thought, and that is that familiarity does not always breed love for and cherishing of. Often even familiarity breeds a sharp contrast to what is desired. Think about the things or the people that you see all the time, and you will quickly see what being familiar with something, uh, that being familiar with something is not equal to appreciating that thing. If I were to ask you men in here to tell me what color your wife's dress or shirt was today without looking right now, could you do it? Did you pay attention enough this morning to know what your wife was wearing, or vice versa, your wife to your husband? Could you do it? Uh, that's just, now some of you would say yes and you're a nerd, but, um, uh, but, but familiarity, that's just a point to prove that familiarity does not always breed appreciation. Just because you see your wife every day doesn't breed appreciation. It's why, and I hope you've had these moments, it's why often 
um, I catch a view of my wife across a room, and I'm still amazed at how much I love her. I'm still amazed at how much I love her. But in the same breath, I can be in an argument with her and not want to see her face. And obviously the same with me. I see something that she does, or I think about her, or I look at her in a certain way, and it amazes me how much I love her. But I also live every day unappreciative of that. Because familiarity, because uh, commonality does not always breed appreciation. If I were to ask you, away from this building, how many windows were on the outside of this building? Could you tell me how many windows were on the outside of this building? Could you tell me a ton of details about this church building without walking around and drawing a picture or, or reading it? And some of you are counting now. River will be able to tell me in a few minutes. But, but familiarity does not always breed appreciation. I remember a few years ago, uh, my wife and I left uh, our house uh, to our MC. We left our house and we left some 20-year-old somethings in our house to finish up missional community group. And when we got back to our home, there was a half a dozen to a dozen things in our house that were switched around. And some were obvious. Some I was like, okay, this, this shoe doesn't belong on this. Uh, I don't remember all the things that were done. Uh, Andy can tell you. if She claims she didn't do any of it, but she was responsible for half of it at least. Um, so... So, um, but, but there, were, there were weeks that went by before we noticed some things that, were, that had been changed in our house. Because familiarity does not always breed appreciation. If I worry about anything with our church and other strong believers, It would be that we have gained such a familiarity with the knowledge of the Word of God. Such an understanding of the knowledge of the Word of God. But at times we lack our appreciation with just how special, just how precious that Word is. I've been thinking about this often over the last few weeks. I remember when I first really committed to following Christ as an adult. <clears throat> I mean, I've always, most of my life, I've had a sense of what it means to love the Lord. But as an adult, I really committed to following Him. And I, and I began preaching and telling other people about God. There was little else I talked about than the Word of God. And I often wonder about myself, although you guys probably... <laughs> don't think that it's true, I often wonder about myself, am I talking about the Word of God enough? Have I become so familiar with the preaching of the Word of God, so familiar with the truth of the Word of God, that I have forgotten to speak of it in this precious and mighty and wonderful way? Do I treat the Word of God in my house, in my home, in my private life? And the way that it should be treated. You've all heard me quote verses like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God will be well equipped for every good work. You've heard me quote Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on the law he meditates day and night. You're familiar with verses like your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. I will hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You have heard how the word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We are so familiar with the word of God that often we neglect God's word. This would have been so uncommon in the first century church. This would have been so uncommon in churches throughout history where a copy of God's word would have been rare and not in every household. Where they would have memorized and eaten and chewed and digested his word 
as if it were the most, as it is, the most precious thing on this earth. Let's take a test. Let's take a test to see if we rightly appreciate the word of God. When you are in a bind emotionally or spiritually, who or what is the first place or the first thing you do to cons- or, or the first place you go for consultation? Where is the first place? To whom do you go? When you are setting goals or brainstorming solutions for your life, when you're in a good place and you're trying to just really figure out what the direct, next direction of life is. What is your primary source for reliable direction? What about this? When someone needs advice, does the advice you give sound like you or does it sound like the word of God? Does it sound temporal or does it sound eternal? When you are filling your time during the day, what Little corner is left for the word of God. Those are just a few questions, I think, that reveal to us the seriousness that we have towards the word of God. And I think in our passage today, we will see that our seriousness towards the word of God will be directly related to our pursuit of holiness and the strength of our love. And I'm hoping that today that the words of 1 Peter will remind us of the great value of the wonderful word of God and will cause you to take action in making sure that the word of God is something that you and I, that we cherish every day. Peter gives these Christians at Asia Minor some hard facts about the living and abiding word of God. And I want to give those to you relatively quickly in a Bryce sort of way today. The first is this. The living and abiding word of God purifies our soul. The living and abiding word of God purifies our soul. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The word of God is powerful in so many ways. But I believe that the Bible is the primary method that God uses to purify our souls. Now, when we come to Christ, we are found right with God, of course. But there is a necessary, regular cleaning that must take place in order for us to follow the Lord. Now, how does Peter say we are purified? We are purified by obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth. And then he says, the truth comes from The living word of God. Post-conversion growth and moral maturity is an active response to the call of God. And that growth comes from an inward change that is the purifying of our souls. And that change, friends, is caused primarily by the reading of, the loving, the submitting to, and the living of the living word of God. God. This is not just your obedience to a gospel salvation or calling, but to the entirety of Christian teaching. In order for us to work out our salvation and to not abuse this new life that we have, we must have a connection to God's word that then purifies our inward self. For all Christians, this means a massive and consistent an ongoing change that comes from a massive and consistent and ongoing dive into the Word of God. Peter actually tells us in verse 22 where one of the areas that will be most likely to change is our soul. Our soul is not only changed at our salvation, but it is continually changed by our obedience To the truth, one of these areas that changes in our life when our soul changes is our love for the brethren, is our love for the church. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
Obedience then to God's word is seen by a purified soul, but obedience to God's word is seen by the strength of our pure love for God's people. In the modern Christian faith, love and obedience are often disconnected. But this is not true in the scriptures. Obedience to the word of God is inseparably connected to the growth of godly love. We often think and we often see other people try to tell us that love is, or act at least in a way, where love is disconnected to obedience. Where if a church is being loving, that means it's accepting of everything and everyone. Where that is just not the case. We are accepting in the sense that uh, you will never be rejected from the church because you don't have money. You will never be rejected from the church because of the way you look. You will never be rejected from the church because of your gifts, talents, or abilities. But the church does have a standard. And true love is letting people know that the church has a standard because God has a standard. Therefore, brotherly love, or therefore love, sets a standard for people to follow. Now, this doesn't mean that, uh, this is sort of a side sermon, I guess, but this doesn't mean that we try to get people right before they become believers. Because we know that people cannot get right until their hearts are purified, their souls are purified, they are saved, they become obedient to the word of God, then purification happens. So we don't try to sort of disciple people before they become believers. You know, that's really how legalism happens. You try to tell people to get right before you try to tell people how to get right. But there is a standard that is to be followed. And obedience and love are always in the Bible inseparably connected. Obedience to the word of God is inseparably, inseparably connected to the growth and godly love. And the, one of the ways we see this is a pure love for the brethren. Peter uses the word first, a love for the brethren, as phileo, brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia is known as a city of brotherly love because it was named after this Greek word, phileo. Not just an outward love, but a deep and genuine love. The Greek construction here is interesting. Peter is saying not just a love that comes from obedience or that is just a part of our faith. He is saying purify your souls and obey the truth until you start feeling and developing brotherly love. He is not saying purify your souls um, and have brotherly love. He is saying don't stop Becoming more like Jesus until you feel brotherly love. And therefore, brotherly love is one of the first uh, sort of checkpoints in the life of a believer to know that they are growing in faith. So one of the first steps to holiness is to not just quit doing bad stuff, not quit drinking, not quit smoking, not quit sinning, not quit messing up. One of the first steps to holiness is a love for all of those that God loves. A love for all of those that God is making holy along the path as you are becoming holy. Peter says, once you obey the truth, then you should begin to have a genuine phileo. And then after that, he says that phileo then should develop into agapeo, agape. He uses two different words for love here, noting that Christian obedience to the word of God does not only lead to a purification that leads to brotherly love with the saints of God, but also a deep and rich agape love for each other. In general, we should phileo the saints of God. We should love the church. But also, as we grow deeper in sanctification, as our hearts are more and more purified, we should not just phileo the church like we do everyone else. We should agape the church. We should have a deep and abounding love for God's people. These two types of love are a sure sign that purification is happening in your heart. 
This is why we see in other parts of Scripture, if you do not know love, you do not know God. If you do not forgive, how can you be, how can, if you are not a person who gives, forgives, how can we know that you've been forgiven? Because you should forgive as your Father has forgiven you. The, all of these characteristics are, of love are true because they prove that a life is being made into the image of God our Father, being purified. The wonderful word of God purifies our souls. What else does Peter say? The wonderful word of God causes us to be born again. Hallelujah. Amen. Causes us to be born again. Look at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God is the seed of life. It is our source of new life. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. The scriptures then are God's vocalized, breathed out words recorded for us. It is God's power brought forth to us through the spirit of God. God's word is God's calling to us. It communicates truth into our lives and converts us to new life. Here Peter says, since you have or are having been born again, this is in the perfect participle tense, which signifies a continual result of new, new birth. So Peter is saying, as you are continually uh, feeling the results of new birth, because you are not born with any just normal seed, you are born with an imperishable seed. We are born again by the word of God, that is Jesus, but he has also given us his word that produces a continual and lasting result of new birth in us. Why? Because we are not born of a perishable seed, but we are born of a seed that is implanted into our heart and it is imperishable, meaning that the seed of God's word cannot be destroyed and it is always produced the desired result. If a seed is not destroyed, then what does it do? It produces fruit. The seed of God that is implanted in our heart cannot be destroyed, and it always produces the desirable results. Peter also calls the word of God living and abiding. The word in general is not subject to decay or change. It is living uh, it is living unlike human words. It can affect genuine change and lasting change because it is abiding, it is permanent. I have never known anything in this world to cause lasting change other than the word of God that has taken effect in the life of a believer. Listen, there are programs, there are people, there are counselors, there are helpers, there are friends, there are books, there are podcasts, there are TV shows, there are all sorts of things that will bring about a behavioral change in the life of a person. But there is nothing that brings about a permanent change in the life of a believer other than the word of God. we knew that the word of God purified our soul, that would be such a life-changing knowledge. But when we find out that God's word implanted in the life of every believer is indestructible, is imperishable, is living, is unchanging, and always produces the result that is desired, that should put us over the top. Friends, it is God's word implanted in you that brings new life to you and walks you along that path of new life. Because that seed is from God, it cannot be removed, it cannot be destroyed, and it cannot be changed. Can I tell you something wonderful? The same parameters that saved you are the same parameters that keep you. What are they? Trust in the word of God. And the seed will be planted in you, and you will be saved. It is as simple as that. The same parameters that saved you are the same parameters that keep you every day. Trust in the word of God. It will be planted in you. It will keep you, and you will be saved. That's how we come to Christ. That's how we stay with Christ. Trust in the word of God, and the seed will be planted in you. It will grow. 
it will take root, and it will produce the desired result, and that is the purification of your soul. There are no tradebacks as it pertains to your salvation. Not because of you, but because of the imperishable, living, and abiding word of God that was planted, that was implanted in you. The word purifies our soul. The word causes us to be born again. What else does the word do? The word produces continual growth and a longing for his word. Look at verse two, or chapter one, verses chapter two, verses one and two. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter now describes how the love, Peter now describes how the love that the words of God produces is displayed in us. Can I give you some great hope? The cleansing of the church has already happened. The word of God, that is Jesus, has already cleansed his church. But there is a necessity for continual growth that happens. And that comes by our attention to and our following of his written word. Peter in chapter 2 verse 1 is reminding Christians what we are converted from. But he is also contrasting that new way of living with our old way. And that loving one another will cause us to put away things that are harmful to other people. Especially other Christians. Peter gives us a list of things that love will cause us to put away as our souls are being purified. Christian love will cause us to put away malice. That is ill intent or actions that are meant to harm other people. Christian love will cause us to put away malice. Others may treat you maliciously, but that is not the seed you were born into. The seed we were born into produces love and charity and not malice. Peter goes on. He says, uh, deceit. Is, sorry, I lost my spot for a second. He says, deceit. Peter says, Christians' love will cause us to put away deceit. This is trickery or deception that causes harm to others. Our love should cause us to be honest, to be moral, and to be straightforward. Our purification should cause us to be honest and moral and straightforward. We should not have to maneuver our way around or use people to get what we want as Christians. Christian love leads us to want only what we can get without harming other people. Do you understand Put away all deceit. Christian love, the purification of our souls, should cause us to desire only what we can get without harming other people. Put away deceit. Put away deceit. Next, Peter says hypocrisy or insincerity. This is a masking of an inward evil with an outward good. People call church people hypocrites all the time, and they're, they're just ignorant of what hypocrite means. They're wrong. Most church people are not hypocrites. It's not hypocritical for someone to set out to do right and then to accidentally do wrong. That is not the definition of hypocrisy. It is not hypocritical to set out to do right and then to fail at that attempt. Hypocrisy is someone who never intended to do right, but only intends to make people think they did. The church is not full of hypocrites. The church is full of humans. Now, there are hypocrites in the church. Don't get me wrong. There are people who set out to make people think they intend to do well, but do not actually intend to do well. But hypocrisy is not attempting and failing. Hypocrisy is being insincere in the attempt. Peter goes on to say, put away envy. Envy is the opposite of thankfulness. It is the opposite of thankfulness for the good that comes to others. Envy is a love killer. Because in our selfishness, in our hard times, envy causes us to want people to be where we are or worse than where we are presently. 
Envy says, if I can't be happy right now, then no one should be happy right now. Love says, I may be down right now. I may never have it good again. But that person that I love, I hope the best for them. Envy says, if I can't get mine, no one's getting mine. Love says, I hope even if, even in spite of what I'm going through, even if I never see the light of day again, I hope that those I love do. Envy causes us to miss our own blessings and to hate the blessings of others, which is the definition of someone who is unloving. Then Peter says, put away slander. Slander is any word that harms or is intended to harm others. Our words are key to understanding if the love of God resides in us because out of the overflow of the heart does the mouth speak. If our words are life, it is because life is in us. If our words are constantly negative or hurtful, it is because, it is because love and life are not growing in us. So love causes us to put away the things that are unloving. These are things that specifically hurt others. And I want to tell you, and this is a side sermon, and it might mess me up here, but I'm going to do it. I'm not going to sit here and compare sins. But if you find yourself consistently sinning in things that hurt other people, you need to hold your tongue when it comes to other people's sin that sort of are only eroding themselves. And I know, I know no sin only hurts yourself, but, you know, we tend, here's what I mean. I'll just be straightforward with it. We tend to judge the alcoholic. We tend to judge the drug addict. We tend to judge the person who has these visible and outward sins. But if our sins are causing us not to be a loving person, we should definitively stop. We should definitive, we should stop anyway, but we should definitively check ourselves. Because I will tell you, the person that's falling in those sort of moral sins is maybe on a little better footing than the person that claims Christ and continues to hurt the brethren. The person that is falling on those moral sins, the person that, you know, drugs got a hold of and they can't quite get rid of it or are struggling deeply with it because they always will, they might be on a little bit better footing than the person that continues to damage the church of God, who God loves deeply and richly. All right, sort of the sad sermon is over. Put away these things. Peter says in verse 2 of chapter 2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by, which, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter is not calling these Christians new or baby Christians. Many of these Christians, remember this was written in the 60s AD. Many of these Christians have been Christians for 30 plus years. There probably were new Christians. By calling them babies, he is not calling them new Christians. By calling them babies, he is reminding us something that every parent would understand. That every person that has ever taken care of an infant would understand, and it's the reason that infants are overrated, okay? Infants are overrated because they have an insatiable appetite and a consistent and a persistent appetite. So Peter is not saying, you're babies, so you should go after the milk of the word. He is saying, like an infant, constantly and consistently and eagerly longs for the milk of his mother, you too long for the milk of the word of God. Eagerly, consistently, enduringly. You can't, you can't, the reason infants are overrated is because you cannot uh, console them without the milk. You cannot reason with them without the milk. And I want to tell you, Christians, we should be inconsolable if we cannot dive into the Word of God. We should have no reason or no logic to be pushed away from God's Word, from be pushed away from longing into God's Word. We should chase after God's Word like an infant does for his mother's milk. This is not immature Christians. This is maturity in thinking that causes us to be eager for the word of God. The milk here is not in opposition to meat like we see in other parts of scripture. 
It's not in opposition to, to meat here. The milk of the word of God is something that fills us. It's something that, it's not the elementary doctrine compared to me, but instead it is something like the newborn, that the newborn chases after, that we should chase after. A newborn wants nothing more than to eat, sleep, and poop, right? You've heard that, okay? And I'm not going to speak on the other two today, but I will speak on the milk. The newborn needs the milk, and like, not in comparison to the meat, but like the newborn desires for the milk, we too should desire, not for the elementary doctrine, but for the whole thing, the whole thing. Yet often we, and I'm not trying, to make a, not trying to make a statement on breastfeeding or formula, but often we go for the formula. And I know that, at, please don't, let's not make this about that, but I know that, I know that every woman doesn't breastfeed, but breastfeeding has been scientifically proven to be better for a child. And formula has different things that all the time we see allergens and uh, and different uh, impurities, like they just recalled Similac a couple of months ago because they found some sort of impurity in it. We often long for the thing that can be sort of like whipped up quickly and taken care of easily. Not the thing that is most nourishing for us. Long for the pure milk of the word of God like a newborn. The abiding word of God, the amazing word of God produces, produces a longing and produces a spiritual growth in us. And the last thing really quickly, it abides forever. No Christian from the time of Jesus on and really even before Jesus of those who, have the, who were of the faith, no Christian is left without this direction. No one will be left without this direction. Look at verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter now echoes the words of Isaiah to give us one last truth about the word of God through this passage. And that is that the word of God abides forever. Peter is using here the comparison of mortal man to immortal God. He says, all flesh is like the grass. This is all human existence. Every person is like grass. Grass is the commonly used word for hay or grass, something that um, withers, something that can be cut and discarded, something that can be eaten and then, you know, excremented, something that is easily that easily waste away. All flesh is like grass. Human beings, we are like grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Moses said in the psalm, in his psalm he wrote in Psalm 90, we're like a breath. We're seen elsewhere. We're like a vapor. All flesh is like grass. And then all glory is like the flower of the field. This is the human beauty or splendor. So all flesh is like the fleeting nature of grass or our beauty. And all flower like the, the all, um, all glory like the flower of the field. Sorry. Here today and gone tomorrow. Must be incredibly discouraging to read those words or to know that reality for people who do not have Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's why people avoid the conversation of death. It's why people eliminate the fact of God or try to eliminate the fact of God. Because if you don't have to think of God, you don't have to think of death, you don't have to think of judgment, you don't have to think of what's next. You don't have to think of the brevity of life. And if you put it off just long enough, you'll let your soul deal with it in the afterlife. must be incredibly discouraging for someone who's not a believer. The brevity of life and the beauty that fades. 
to be really sort of sad and Debbie Downer for you this morning. We celebrate Millie's birthday today. And I celebrate knowing that there will be times where she celebrates her birthdays without me and without Anna. Life is short. Life is fleeting. If I weren't a Christian, the words, all flesh is like grass and the flower of the field and it falls, those words would haunt me. But because I know the word of God, I move on. The grass withers, yes. The flower falls, of course. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Although everything around us is fading and falling, God never fails. His word endures past all sorts of people and all things in history that have meant to destroy it. And I will close with this. Since God's word abides and we are in God through Christ, then we also abide. When you are in Christ, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit and that seed is imperishable. It is unfading. It always produces the result it intended to produce. And always will. The seed never fails. It's never destroyed. Neither will, be, will, will we be destroyed. So what do we do? We believe in the word of God. We read through the word of God. We rely upon the word of God. And we speak from the word of God. Pray with me today. God, you are good and you are holy. Your word is so true and so beautiful. It is abounding and abiding forever. It is wonderful. It is precious. And yet we often treat it like nothing more than the average book, a magazine, an article. Help us, Lord, to put our faith and our trust and our hope in your word. Now more than ever, every day of our lives, while we have breath. All flesh is like grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Thank you for the gospel of Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.